It's Thursday, February 7th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The political crisis in Virginia has deepened. The top three elected officials, all Democrats, are facing scandals. Governor Ralph Northam is under pressure to resign after a picture surfaced of him wearing blackface. Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax is facing allegations of sexual assault, and Attorney General Mark Herring admitted that he also once wore blackface. Steph Kite, reporter for Axios, joins us to break it all down. Next, there's a wave of bankruptcies sweeping the U.S. farm belt. Low commodity prices and the ongoing trade war are starting to wear down farmers. They are selling land and equipment to keep afloat, but the last resort is bankruptcy, and analysts say more filings could be on the way. Jesse Newman, reporter for The Wall Street Journal, joins us to discuss how farmers are navigating the tough landscape. Finally, car dealers are beginning the year with more vehicles sitting on their lots. Almost 4 million cars were on dealership lots at the end of January, and sales are expected to weaken in 2019. Wall Street Journal reporter Adrian Roberts joins us to talk about the soft sales and what is changing in the U.S. car market. We are buying more crossovers and SUVs. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. My belief that I did not wear that costume or attend that party stems in part from my clear memory of other mistakes I made in this same period of my life. I asked Virginians uh, to accept my word, uh, to realize that I have made mistakes in my past. Joining us now is Steph Kite, reporter for Axios. Wow, it is going crazy in Virginia right now. The top three elected officials, the top three Democrats, Governor Ralph Northam, Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax and Attorney General Mark Herring are all embroiled in some some type of scandal right now. The governor, Ralph Northam, is under pressure to resign after photos resurfaced from 1984 in their his medical school yearbook where he's wearing blackface. The lieutenant governor, Justin Fairfax, is facing allegations of sexual assault. And then Attorney General Mark Herring also came out, said that he once wore blackface in the 1980s. Steph, uh, walk us through some of this. Where did all these allegations come from? Yeah, it's been a wild week for Virginia's government leadership, for sure. And as, as you mentioned, Governor Ralph Northam, there was a photo that was reported on that, that came up earlier this week that showed someone in blackface and someone in a Ku Klux Klan costume on his page of his medical a school yearbook, which of course raised questions whether one of those people was Northam himself. And at first he admitted that it was him, but then later denied that either of those were him, but did admit that at one point he did wear blackface. And so he was embroiled in this scandal and we saw many people calling for him to step down because of this scandal. And then the lieutenant governor, who would have been the first in line if Northam does step down. Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax then faced a sexual assault allegation from a woman who claimed that he sexually assaulted her back in 2004. She wrote an explicit account of what happened, saying that they were at first consensually kissing, but then that quickly turned into sexual assault. And then, so after Justin Fairfax, the next in line for the governorship after that would have been Attorney General Mark Herring, who came forward and admitted to where blackface in college himself. And he's actually called for Northam to resign, but he said that further discussions should be had about his own circumstances and the, and the time that he wore blackface as well. So this then 
then, interestingly, leaves um, House of Delegates Majority Leader Kirk Cox as the next in line after those three, if all three are disqualified from the governorship and step down, it would be Kirk Cox, who's a Republican, who would be next in line for the governorship of Virginia, which is interesting because he won the speakership in a drawing out of the hat. So it's just <laughs> been a lot going on right. this past few days. There's so much, and they've never gone through this before. There's no governor that's ever not served their full term in Virginia. So all sorts of mm-hmm. crazy things could happen as a result of this. Let's break them down a little bit further. So Ralph Northam's yearbook comes out. The picture itself, um, he's in blackface. If that's who he is, he's denying it now, obviously. It's mm-hmm. hard to tell from the printout of the pictures, but everybody knows that type of yearbook picture. It's something usually pictures you would submit personally because this is your own personal page. And it has a couple other pictures, him and his car, and then this picture in question. He had a press conference that was all crazy as well. He said he did wear blackface one time for a Michael Mm -hmm. Jackson uh, dance contest. And he's at this press conference he's talking about, and he said he won the contest because he learned how to moonwalk. (laughs) And a reporter asked him, do you still know how to moonwalk? And his wife chimes in and says this isn't suitable for for this press conference like that so he kind of glossed over but he wanted to even answer that so he's Mm -hmm. just all over the place it's hard to really figure out what's going on there and he's resisting calls to resign everywhere top leadership national Mm -hmm. leaders everybody there in the virginia house all want him to resign yes there's a lot of pressure on him to resign i think this is a really interesting moment to see whether these allegations and clear evidence of of racism and even the Me Too movement really do carry a weight that maybe we haven't seen in the past. I think that's something that's really important to watch, where we've seen so much progress in these areas and seeing the Me Too movement over the past two years and then addressing these issues of racism and blackface and this becoming a more prominent issue that's discussed. Will there be repercussions at this level, I think, is a really important question that we're all waiting to see get answered for the lieutenant governor and the attorney general calls for them to resign really haven't come through in full force yet the lieutenant mm-hmm. governor says he he was with the woman it was consensual and uh, she alleges that it did start out consensually kissing and then it went south from there and she says she can't imagine that her distress during that encounter why he would think it was consensual the Washington Post did pick up the story at some point, but they never ran it in the newspaper because they couldn't find any corroborating evidence. It's a very interesting situation that we've seen over and over again, where we're walking this line between believing women and believing survivors who have these very traumatic experiences that they have bravely come forward to share. But there are issues with the corroboration. And the fact that the Washington Post did not run the story originally does bring up some questions. But there are some things about the story that do line up. The fact that both of them at least agree that it started consensually, but then of course, Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax claims that it, it was never not consensual, that, that the encounter was completely with consent, whereas, of course, the woman is accusing him of really abusing her in, in a way that was very traumatic to her. And so we're going to have to see how this storyline plays out and whether there are other corroborating stories when it comes to Justin Fairfax. The last question I have about this has to do with the attorney general. When the news about the governor came out, He was one of the people that were calling on him to resign. Then he comes out and says, well, I, I, in the 80s, 
did blackface because we went to a party and we all dressed up like rappers that we liked at the time. The only question I have is, did he bring this to the forefront or did somebody else surface this? Because now that he's been talking about it, he said, I, I knew this would come out at some point, but did he bring this out just to be forthright or did somebody else leak this? At this point, it was, it was him who came forward and said, this is something that did happen once in my past, whether someone was planning to write a story and gave him a heads up, we're unsure of at the moment, but he has admit it. And I think it'll be interesting to see whether the fact that he was forthright does him any favors over Northam, who has admitted and then denied and changed the story. It'll be interesting to see whether the response to these accusations and these, the use of blackface changes the perceptions in the public. Steph Kite, reporter for Axios, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Prices have been low for various farm commodities for for multiple years. And then last year, all of this was compounded by the trade disputes that, that farmers found themselves in the midst of. And that has not helped matters at all. Joining us now is Jesse Newman, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. There's a wave of bankruptcies that are sweeping across the U.S., farm belt. Trade disputes that we know have been going on for a little bit of time now are adding to some of the pain that's going on for American farmers. But a lot of them are filing for Chapter 12 bankruptcy protection, uh, levels not seen for in at least a decade. So what do we know about what's affecting our farmers in the Midwest? Farmers are in the midst of a multi-year downturn in agriculture, and this really began in about 2014 when we were coming off some never-before-seen high prices for commodities like corn and soybeans and wheat, and things started to turn down after that. We've had about five years of bumper crops in the Midwest, so farmers are just producing more than they ever have before, and we We've got some pretty hefty stockpiles of crops that are piled up, which is pressuring prices. So we're seeing, you know, prices have been low for various farm commodities for for multiple years. And then last year, all of this was compounded by the trade disputes that, that farmers found themselves in the midst of. And that has not helped matters at all. So amid this downturn, farmers have found themselves in the eye of the storm when it comes to the tit-for-tat tariffs that Washington and countries like China have been placing on one another. And prices for everything from soybeans to hog to cheese have really been impacted by tariffs put in place by these big buyers. There's been record productivity on American farms. Are we buying less? Is it all about prices and these trade disputes that are making those prices go down? Obviously, this makes slimmer margins for the farmers themselves. But where is this disparity coming from? The problem is that international buyers are purchasing less of U.S. commodities. So we are, as you said, farmers today are more productive than they've ever been in history. And we just have an oversupply. We have a global oversupply of things when it comes to commodities, when it comes to grain. But then you add in the tariff sites that we're in the midst of and are some of the biggest customers for our products like soybeans and pork and cheese have now slapped tariffs on our products, which means that those importers, importers in those countries are purchasing less of our products, which just exacerbates the problem of oversupply. 
we're talking about bankruptcies and in these three regions that cover a lot of the major farm states, bankruptcies are doubling or rising by astronomical numbers, really. So in the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, the bankruptcies are double the amount compared to 2008. In the Eighth Circuit, bankruptcies are up 96%. That's crazy. Bankruptcy is the last sign of financial distress. So this has been building now for a good five, six-year period. And we've seen the early signs of this sort of trouble. We've seen farmers' loan repayment rates starting to slow just as low prices make it more difficult for farmers to pay back their loans. And now we are sufficiently far into the downturn that you're beginning to see farms that just have run out of options and can't make it anymore. And so they are finally for bankruptcy in these three districts, which, as you say, represent quite a significant swath of the Midwest and the Farm Belt, where a lot of our nation's grain and meat is produced, they're filing for bankruptcy at levels that we haven't seen in at least 10 years. What about the farm bill that President Trump signed? Is there any relief in that for these farmers? One of the biggest forms of relief that a farmer would likely point to is a measure that the Trump administration promised and is making good on currently, which is something called MFP payments. This is not part of the farm bill, but it is relief trade mitigation payments that the Trump administration promised to farmers as a result of the trade dispute. So to sort of cushion the blow from trade disputes and the tariffs, which the Trump administration initiated, they have promised to pay farmers who apply a certain amount of money, depending on their production levels. And that is something that farmers are very grateful for, because it means that although soybean sales to China, our biggest customer, are down, they're going to be getting direct payments from the government. Now, farmers will also be quick to tell you that you know this isn't going to make them whole. These payments that the government is providing is a far cry from what they would have gotten if our exports were up at the same pace that they were at pre-trade war levels. So this certainly isn't full mitigation of trade disputes, but it is probably the biggest form of relief that farmers are looking forward to. Jesse Newman, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. They're pulling back to maintain their profits, and the dealer is already squeezed. They do not make much margin, if anything, on on a new vehicle sale. So they may have to start offering discounts as well, but they're less likely to do that. Joining us now is Adrian Roberts, Autos reporter for The Wall Street Journal. We're going to be talking about the car sales that are going on right now. The sales are expected to weaken this year of 2019, and car dealerships are just have a ton of unsold cars there on the lot. There are fears that it could force these car makers to cut factory production in the United States. But what do we know about what's happening right now? Last year and the past few years before this, we've had really strong sales, over 17 million. 2016 was a record year. And now moving into 2019, this is the first time that we're expecting sales to drop below that 17 million mark. And that's because interest rates are going up, making new car loans more expensive. And the used car lot is becoming really appealing as these car prices on the new side increase. So what's happening here is as sales are expected to drop, automakers are building like we're going to have another record year. (laughs) And that's a problem because it's leaving all this inventory on the dealership lot. And it's really, we're going to have to see how it plays out, but it could result in a few things, either production cuts or automakers could start laying on the discount 
discounts to get people to come into the, the dealership and buy, or they may sell more to, to fleet buyers instead of the retail consumer. It could be pretty good for consumers because a lot of times what happens also is the dealerships are forced to cut those prices and release all the inventory out. General Motors, as we heard last year, moved to end production at five factories in North America. This is kind of the worry that this could happen all over again. Maybe other companies might have to cut production. It could go a number of ways. <laughs> so right now, right now, the, the interesting part, though, is you would think that with all this, this unsold inventory, automakers would say, okay, we're going to help the dealers out and we're going to start adding on the incentives from our end. But they're not doing that. They're pulling back to maintain their profits and the dealer is already squeezed. They do not make much margin, if anything, on, on a new vehicle sale. So they may have to start offering discounts as well, but they're less likely to do that. And then we have GM ending production at these, these five North American factories this year. And that was because of two things. One is that consumers love SUVs and trucks and sedans sales are really struggling in the U.S. And then they see this this U.S. car market downturn, which is what we're saying here, where sales start, start to drop in 2019 and drop even further in the years moving ahead. Further complicating this, though, is that automakers, now that they're realizing that people don't want sedans, they're launching all these new crossovers and SUVs. Well, all those vehicles are coming into the market this year and in the years ahead. And when an automaker launches a new product, they're always optimistic. And this is what dealers are telling me. They, they'll they say, okay, take a lot of these vehicles. We're going to gain market share with this. And the problem is not everyone can win. So they're kind of at an odd spot here where, where sales are dropping. They're launching all these new vehicles and then they're trying not to spend as much on, on discounts. So we'll have to see how it plays out. The numbers on that are pretty amazing. Also, there's 48 new model launches that are planned for this year. There was 42 last year and five years ago, it was only 36 new model launches. That's a lot. You can't discount those cars as you said, you've got to create a bunch of buzz for those cars. And so I'm assuming that's why they're optimistic and all, but that's, that's a tough sell right there. Well, exactly. It's, you don't want to launch a new car and then say, oh yeah, and we're discounting it by $5,000. It's like, that's, that's not a good way to start. But every automaker, you know, is convinced that this is the vehicle that's, that's going to, you know, gain traction for them and, and they'll gain market share. So it's amazing how that number is increasing in terms of new model launches. And that's not supposed to slow down in the next few years. And that's going to be happening. We're going to see even more new model launches. At the same time, sales are expected to further decline into 2020 and 21. So they've really put themselves in an interesting interesting predicament. Car sales have always been a good marker of how well the economy is doing, where if you know the economy is pumping, people are buying stuff, people are buying new cars. With weakening sales, is this really worrying? Uh, I mean, who's getting the most worried? Is it dealerships on the lower end or is are the big car manufacturers starting to worry, even though they're not slowing down production. I think we're entering an interesting point where car makers are saying, like GM and Ford, we understand that we're not going to be able to sell to everyone. But what we're going to do is we're going to continue to build pickup trucks that sell for over $50,000 and these high margin SUVs and crossovers, and we're going to stop selling sedans. And those are the lower margin vehicles. They usually cost less. And consumers are saying, we can't afford these new vehicles, which run the average price of a car now is over $35,000, which is a lot of money. And they're going to the used car market where they can get a barely used vehicle that oftentimes comes off lease and doesn't have many miles on it. So there are options out there, but it's really, there's someone's going to be a winner and someone's going to be a loser here. Adrian Roberts, reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. 
that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.